Exodus 20, and we'll be reading the last, uh, the last few verses from 22 through 26. Exodus 20, verse 22 through 26. Sometimes my wife gives me some instructions, and uh, I don't hear them. And um, so she'll, she'll tell me to do something, and then later I'll explain to her I, I, I didn't hear it. And uh, I've tried to work on when I'm not hearing her to say, I'm sorry, can you go back over all those directions again so that I can let it sink in? And I, I'm afraid sometimes that's true of God's word as well, that God gives us instructions and it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And I think that's part of why there's some repetition that's involved. Um, and we can complain about the repetition or we can recognize the danger that we have of failing to hear what God's word has to say to us. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Exodus 20, 22 through 26. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it up of hewn stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Open it to us this morning. Help it to lodge deep in our hearts. Teach us what your word has to say and then help us in wisdom to apply it to our lives and then to obey it daily. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you did or maybe you didn't notice that in the passage that we've read here, there's, a, there's some repetition from what we've already read and what we've already studied Um, in the Ten Commandments, God has brought this back up. Remember that I mentioned to you last week that there were thunderings and lightnings and and a display of the power of God all through the giving of these Ten Commandments that strikes such terror and fear into the hearts of the children of Israel that they cry out for a mediator. And that is the purpose in God's giving of the law and in the way that he gave it is so that you and I would cry out for that mediator just like the children of Israel did. They were right to ask for a lawyer. They were right to ask for someone to step between them and God. And that person is Jesus. For them, Moses stood in the place of Christ. He was a a picture of Christ and a forerunner of Jesus. But for you and I, the scripture says there's no other name given under heaven whereby we may be saved but by the name of Jesus. And in this passage... God speaks through Moses to the children of Israel. In fact, other than this giving of the Ten Commandments, this is the only time that God speaks to the children of Israel directly in that way. And all of the rest through the, through the first five books of the, the Bible, it is Moses being given God's word and then Moses giving God's word to the children of Israel. But look what, what God emphasizes to the children of Israel in this passage. He begins by saying, he said, you're, you're to say unto the children of Israel, ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. 
I wouldn't think that would be something that God would need to remind them of since the earth is still reverberating with the sound of Yahweh's voice and and since the terror and fear, the sweat is still dripping down their faces and the tremors still grip them as the fear of God has fallen on the children of Israel. But evidently God felt the need to drive home to them that they have heard God's voice for themselves. Why is that so important? Well, it's important for this reason, that God wants to remind them to drive home to the children of Israel that this was not Moses' ten suggestions for the children of Israel. These weren't ten good ideas that Moses has about how we maybe should serve God. Um, Before the worship service, I was talking to Sister Dorothy, and we were talking about how it used to be Um, that probably the style of preaching that I have was kind of a little bit unusual because most preachers, when they got up here, they felt the need to try to strike terror in the hearts. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that at all. But you've heard my dad. My dad is a little more uh, vehement when he preaches. And there can be a good way that a preacher brings across the importance of what he's saying. But if there's a, a mistake that I think that we've struggled with in the past, and this preacher can sometimes struggle with it. But I try my best to make sure I don't fall in that trap. And that is to stand behind this pulpit and give you words that aren't actually God's words. They're just my good ideas. Because if I do that, it doesn't matter how loudly I say them or how much of a, how much of a uh, guttural uh, accent I give them. They're just my words. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a very scary guy to start with. I I don't loom over the pulpit with any kind of uh, um, physical presence that would strike fear in anybody's heart. And so therefore, if I'm up here giving my ideas, it's going to be very easy for you all to say, well, that's fine for Brother Martin to say. And that's fine that Brother Martin feels that way. But I don't think it really matters to me. But the more faithfully I can teach and preach this word, the more carefully I can apply it to your lives, the less space there is for you to ever leave a message and say, well, that's just Brother Martin's ideas. Do you know that Scripture has been given to us by God and His purpose in giving us that Scripture wasn't so you and I could just figure out on our own what we were supposed to do. But he gave us an objective word and the purpose of exposition of Scripture, of preaching a sermon, the purpose of it is not for Martin to insert his own ideas in the Bible, but it's for us to find what God's ideas are that he's communicating to us through the Bible. There are going to be those occasions when I might make an application that makes you uncomfortable. Or that makes you have to adjust something in your life. That obeying it would require some adjustment in your life. But if you're truly submitting yourself to the word of God. Then we can't ever just dismiss God's word and say well I don't see it that way. I was in a a discussion with with someone. I've been in a discussion with someone before. And they it wasn't about God's word. It was just about different other things. And I would give them what I thought. And they would just say well I just don't agree with you. Does that ever leave you kind of exasperated when people do that? Anybody else have that happen to you? When you, when you say something, you say, well, I don't see it that way. And what you want to say is, well, well how do you see it? What's, what's your view on that then? What's your point? What's your, what's your, uh, what's your theory? Because it's not enough, and I, I say this carefully, but it's not enough just to say, well, I don't see it that way. 
this word means something. And it's perfectly fine about some very minor issue for us to have some differences in how we see it. But we need to recognize that our authority we're answering to is this word. And it's an objective reality. It wasn't that the children of Israel were supposed to sit around and have, a, have, a, uh, have kind of little small groups where they get to dis- dissect the Ten Commandments and discover some hidden spiritual significance that wasn't there at the time, but they just felt like that was what it meant to them. Sometimes uh, I've, I've read where they've warned that sometimes in Bible study we can do that, where we get around in a little circle and we say, well, what did this verse mean to you? How did you feel about this scripture? What does it feel like it's saying to you? Do you know that that's not the correct way to come at God's word? We come at it as an objective truth that we say, what is God's word saying to me? And God is saying to the children of Israel through the mouth of Moses right now, you heard me speak and it was me that spoke. It wasn't just Moses' ideas. It was the voice of God himself. And if there's one burden that I have for my preaching, is that it is that it would have that weight that only comes through the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I think of the words that are given about Samuel. When the anointing of God is upon Samuel as a little boy, what Scripture says as he grows older, it says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and the Lord did not allow one of Samuel's words to fall to the ground. What is that a picture of? It's kind of this idea that, Moses, that, that Samuel's words were penetrating the hearts of people. They weren't just falling to nothing, but people heard them and they recognized these words are important. I've heard speakers before that, that have a way of droning on and on and make it very easy to dismiss them. But I've heard some speakers, and I've been privileged to hear some preachers, that when they spoke, you knew that you that you differed at your own peril because there was something in the way that they presented God's word or the topic that they were bringing that gave it authority and weight. And that's what my prayer is. My prayer that is that when I'm behind this desk, when I'm behind this pulpit, that it's never just, well, Martin's up here to give you some good ideas about how to live a good life, but that it's this is the standard that God is asking of his people. This is what God expects of us, and we must obey it. And that's only going to happen through two things. Is number one, the Spirit of God resting on me so that my words have real merit and value. And it's also through your willingness to hear the voice of God speaking to you. It's both the listener and the speaker willing to, to be receptive and obedient to God's word. But what... What God goes on to say to the children of Israel is to simply repeat one of the commandments all over again. And and maybe we would look at that and wonder, why is God repeating himself? Like, why does God say the same thing again and again? And it's kind of like I said, it's because you and I are humans and uh, we have a tendency to just let things go in one ear and out the other. This is true in every area of our life, but it seems like it's especially true about the Bible. How often I've turned to Scripture and read something that I'm certain I had read before because I've I've read all of God's Word and I've read it more than once. I've read through my Bible repeatedly, but I can still come to verses and say to myself, I never knew that it said that. I never realized that. I've heard preachers preach sermons that opened up God's Word and I recognized as they were preaching it, I had heard this truth before, but I'd forgotten it. 
I, I wonder why that is, that we're like that, so forgetful. So what does God tell them? He says, you're not to make any golden image, image of gold or silver. He's basically just repeating the first and second commandments all over again, but with just a little different emphasis. In the first commandment and second commandment, God has told them, don't make any idols. And he emphasized what creatures they were to not look like. He said, don't make one like, like any animal in heavens above or in the earth or in the waters under the earth. I don't look like any of those things. Don't make an idol that looks like that. But in this passage, he's emphasizing the aesthetic aspect of idols and of idolatry. He said, I don't want you to make a gold or a silver idol. Now, he's, he's not saying it's okay. He's not, he's not undoing what he said before. He's, he's expanding on it and explaining it in a deeper way. And he's reminding the people that, that that aesthetic sense, that attractiveness of idols is part of their danger. And if God has repeated it twice in this passage, and as I've mentioned to you just a couple of weeks ago, that the command against covetousness is a reminder that covetousness and idolatry go hand in hand. Paul says that repeatedly in the New Testament, that a covetous heart is an idolatrous heart, that to, to seek after things other than God in a way that doesn't honor and please God is to put those things before God. And that's what Moses is pointing out in this passage when he says that they aren't to make an idol of silver or an idol of gold. But if you or I look at our lives, and I've mentioned this before, but I, I repeat it because God's word repeats it. Most of us would probably have a difficult time seeing that there's any idols in our lives or even any dangers of idols, any danger, anything that maybe could become an idol or is almost an idol. But I'll give you just a few little questions that you might ask yourself about things. We've talked about these before, but I want, you, I want them burned into our mind. What are the things... What, what are the things that matter to you? What are the things that you spend your time on, your money on? Those things that are most important to you. We've talked about what's your screensaver, the thing that your mind goes to when you're not thinking about anything else. What are the things you turn to for comfort? Do you see how there's, there's really an endless list of things that can become idols in your life? There are things that... And, and many times those things are profoundly attractive. God has made us with a sense for beauty, and that attraction to beauty can become idolatrous where we're, we're drawn to these things, but God doesn't want any of those things to take his place, and this is why. When we think about what is it that gives us comfort, what is the thing that makes us feel secure, what are the things that we love most deeply, what are the things that make us most angry. When we think about those things, what we have to recognize is that God wants to be in the center so that when we're seeking for comfort, instead of turning to, what is it for you? Social media? A game? A book? There's a long list of things that can step into that place. But what God is saying to us is he wants to be the one that we turn to when we're longing for comfort. He wants to be the, the one that we turn to when we're looking for security, when we're looking for stability. A, a friend of mine was speaking to me a few weeks ago, and, uh, and in the midst of that conversation, it reminded me 
of a book that I had read about. I haven't read this book yet, and possibly I've mentioned this before to the, from the pulpit, so you'll just bear with me if I'm repeating myself again. But there were book reviews from an author named Jen Wilkins, and she's written two books dealing with the ways that we're made uh, like God and the ways that we're different from God. And the two books, the titles I think are, are so fascinating. The titles are In His Image and None Like Him. And in the book, In His Image, she discusses all the ways that we're like God in our, our moral sensibility and moral responsibility and our creativity and, and our uh, capacity for relationships. These are different ways that we are like God. And in her book, uh, None Like Him, she discusses all the ways that we're not like God, that God is, stands alone and he's different and he's utterly unique and holy. And... Then she discusses in the course of that book how that, that many of those traits that God alone has, we long to be like God. Um, that was Satan's temptation to Eve in the garden. You eat this fruit and you will be like God. We want to be omniscient. Part of the, part of the draw of Google is the desire for omniscience. Um, I'm somebody that's, that can be very drawn to that. I like to, if I have a topic that I'm trying to learn about or something that I'm trying to study, uh, especially when it comes to theology, but even if it refers to a current event or historical event or uh, a debate, if, if I'm studying something, I want to learn everything there is to know about it. Uh, by personality, I want to be the kind of person that people can come to and I can give you every possible scrap of information that you could have about that, and I can be authoritative about that topic. That's just my personality. I want to I know about things. But I have learned over time, and I'm still learning this, that I can never know everything there is to know about a topic. The rabbit hole can go as deep as you want to go, and I can never have absolute perfect certainty about anything except for as I rest my faith in God and his omniscience. I can have faith in God's word because God is trustworthy. But I can't have faith in myself and in my ability or my wisdom or my knowledge or my understanding. And omniscience is one of those things that we, we can make an idol of. We want to be like God. But there's another, there's another one that we sometimes embrace, and that's God's immutability. What does immutability be, mean? Well, immutability means... God's unchangeableness. It's the fact that God is always the same. From the dawn of creation and before, all through the aeons of, of eternity, and for as long as this world shall last and out into the infinity that is the future of eternity, God has never changed. And we want to be like that. We don't like change. People don't like change. And I was speaking to my friend, and he was talking about all the changes in his life, and that was hard. How many of you, you would say, I don't like change? I, I, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a big, per some people, they like novelty and differences. But most of us, we want a modicum of stability in our lives. And my friend was talking about how much change is happening in his life. And here's what he said. He said that he was in a service, and they were singing some songs, and God just slipped up beside him and said, Things are really changing in your life, aren't they? And he said, yes, God, they are. You don't like it, do you? He said, no, I don't. God said, well, he said, you know, 
not only are the things in your life changing, the people in your life are changing, but you're changing too. But he said, I want to just tell you something. I won't ever change. The reason why we worship God, the reason why it's so important that we have him be our source of security and stability is because of how desperately we need something that doesn't change in our lives. And here's what I want to tell you. This is a warning to you. If you put anything but God in that place, you will end up disappointed. This is why God goes through our life and smashes our idols. This is why he does. It's because he knows that apart from him, we can have no peace, security, safety, and satisfaction. If we put anything else in that place and try to derive from it what we're supposed to only find in God, we'll end up deeply disappointed. And God comes and destroys our idols. He pulls those idols down, not because he hates us and he wants to harm us, but because he loves us and he wants to reign in that place because that's the only way that we'll find any security or stability. Think of the song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. When all around my soul gives way, Christ then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Do you see with me that the stability that you're craving in your life, that sense of security can only come when every idol has been banished and you find your security and your comfort and your hope in Jesus himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not only does the scripture that we read this morning give us a warning of idols, a warning against idols, but he goes on to tell us instructions for worship. And maybe they're instructions that puzzled you just a bit when you read them. He says that God says to Moses, you're to build an altar of earth to make sacrifices on, uh, you're to build it in the place where I put my name or the places wherever I record my name. If you make an altar of stone, um, you're not to lift up your tool upon it and you're not to make a uh, steps to go up to the altar. So these are essentially, there are three different directives about this that they can make the altar of earth or stone, but whichever they use, they're not allowed to use a tool upon it. They're not allowed to grave on it or to shape the stones. They are only allowed to make altars in designated places. And, and then finally, they're not allowed to build steps to go up to the altar. And these are three instructions that might appear a bit odd to you. But there was a reason and a purpose be- behind each of them. And I believe that they apply to our lives today. The reason why God instructed them, and, and if you're wondering where it says that they're only allowed to put altars in certain places, look what he says. He says that you will make an altar to me. It's in verse 24. And you can make them in all places where I record my name and I will come unto you and bless you. So where are they allowed to build an altar? Wherever God has placed his name or recorded his name or wherever the name of God is. And it it appears that what they mean is that these are to be historic sites. They aren't to just decide, well, I'm going to go to a new place or I'm just going to go out to the woods or I'm just going to go to this hill. But these... There were places in the land of Canaan that had historic significance for the children of Israel. Remember Bethel? That's the place where Jacob sets up his altar. 
Do you remember uh, that there's um, Mount Moriah? That's where the temple in Jerusalem is finally built, but that's also uh, probably this is where Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. Um, So God is telling them, you go to certain places because these are specific places that have a historic connection. They matter. And can't we see in our own day and age that that our determination to just choose our own place to worship has left us disconnected to our past and uncertain about our future. And the reason why I appreciate even a church building like this and the reason why we weep when cathedrals burn is because places matter. History matters. And when we cut ourselves off from our own history and memory, we oftentimes cut ourselves off from the way God's presence has come to us in the past. But not only has God instructed them to only build their altars in certain places, but he gives that odd instruction that they can build an altar of earth or of stone, but whatever they do, they're not to raise a tool up up upon it. And then he goes on to say they're not to build steps up to it. Well, what is the reason for the the command against building steps? It would seem uh, just a small and minor thing. But we have to ask ourselves, what would be the purpose in building steps? Why would they need to make steps up to the altar? And it seems that what God is concerned about here is that their worship over time might grow more and more like the worship of the people around them. Uh, in In the ancient Near East, they would build ziggurats. Some of you might remember those from your history books the, and the archaeology books. The ziggurats were these, these large pyramid-type shaped things that had steps that lifted the people up. And, and there were two purposes in this. There was, there was an idea of pagan worship that it brought them closer to God and elevated them above the earth. And then there was the idea of, of putting on a show, that if they're going to put on a good performance then they need to lift up the stage so that they can be seen by the people. And God is concerned that they don't begin to worship him like that. And I believe that still today, this passage applies in this way, that God is concerned for our worship, that our worship does not become an act of performance, something to just lift up us, and that also our worship doesn't become like a pagan worship around us. Jesus, in fact, reiterates something like this commandment when he says, do you remember when he says to the the people, he says, when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees, for they like to pray in the marketplace. And when you read that, it seems a little odd, like, is God telling us not to pray when we're with other people? Well, no, that's not at all what he's saying, but the people understood very well what Jesus meant. What he was referring to was this practice of the Pharisees, because the Jews would pray three times a day, the Pharisees because of their deep spiritual humility, they like to, to, to make this practice of timing out their grocery store runs, their run to the marketplace, to make sure that they were there in the marketplace when the call to prayer happened. And then what they could do is, when the call to prayer went out, they would find some steps somewhere, you know, get themselves up on some steps, and they would, then they would begin to pray loudly and boisterously so that everybody could hear how spiritual they were. And Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. When you pray, you don't need to let anybody else know you're praying. There's there's no need to make a show of your spirituality. But this can be a quiet place between you and God the Father in your secret place, in your your 
prayer closet, as Jesus called it. Go into your closet and shut the door. Jesus wasn't speaking of hiding out of embarrassment, but out of a desire to not look better than you are or better than others or more spiritual than others. I read a story some time back, and as I recall, I, I can't find the story right now, but as I recall this particular story, it's a, it was of a, a journalist And if I remember the details, this journalist, as he recounted the story, was not a believer himself. But he said one of the most impactful things that happened to him is when he was sent to cover uh, a story of national importance at a, um, a little mountain town way down in the south. And when he got there, um, the... It was, I believe he was there for a funeral, but it was a, a, a funeral of some importance. And the minister at the close of the funeral bowed his head to pray. And the, the reporter was struck so deeply with the sincerity and, and the uh, profound personal aspect of the prayer that he, he didn't get a photograph. And when the prayer ended, he, he asked the minister, he said, Sir, I, I appreciated that prayer so much. Can you just, can you just pray again so that, that uh, we can take a photo and, and so that I can capture this moment? And he said the minister looked at him and said, Young man, we have prayed once to God and will not pray again for show. Do you know that that might look to us a little bit funny? Like if you or I were there, many of us wouldn't have been uncomfortable. Maybe maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't have, to have just bowed your head again for that newspaper photo. But I think that that minister was expressing a very deep truth, that we can either pray to people, to be seen of people, and to be appreciated by people, or we can pray to God. And in that, in that little story, that minister wasn't praying uh, in his closet. He was praying where he could be seen and heard, but it was very obvious that that wasn't his intention to impress anybody. It was to speak to God. And the building of steps is the idea of making our worship to be something that impresses other people instead of it being for God. And remember what Jesus says about that kind of worship? He says, the people that do that kind of worship, they already have their reward. But he said, if you will pray to your father who sees in secret, your father will reward you openly. And what Jesus is referring there is to the the blessing that comes to those who put God's God first. One of the things that is reiterated again and again in the Gospels is that there were people, many of them very religious people, that were more motivated by the praise of people than they were by the glory of God. May God help us to be the kind of people that our hearts, our minds, and the focus of our worship is only completely on the glory of God. And then the last thing is just that odd command not to lift up a stone or lift up a tool on their stone altar. They, they weren't to shape those stones. And we might read that and say, what a strange command for God to give them. But I believe the purpose is that right here in the Gospels, or I'm sorry, right here in the, the book of Exodus, we see a picture It's a picture of the unmerited grace and favor of God that's been shown to the people. And it's reminding them that the altar 
is not their work but God's. That atonement is not something they do for themselves, but God does for them. In fact, God says, if you so much as as lift up one stone, if you shape one of those stones with a tool, you have polluted it. Anything you would do would mess up my grace. And I believe when it comes to our salvation, when we have this idea that somehow we kind of do some good things and then God does some good things and it's just our, our works and God's good grace, we're polluting the grace of God. And Paul says if we do that, we have denied the gospel. Until we've reached the point where we recognize the depths of our own sinfulness and the holiness of the God that we serve, we are not truly Christian. Until we've recognized how alienated from God sin has made us and the fact that there's nothing we can do to bring us back into fellowship with God. And that's what an untooled altar pictures. It's rustic. It's humble. No one's going to look at the craftsmanship of the altar and say, wow, they did a good job. It's just simple, plain stones. But on that stones is laid the lamb, the the whole burnt offering that's to be given completely to God to atone for the children of Israel, to atone for the individual families, knowing that their sin has alienated them from God and someone is going to have to take their place. And the lamb represented that someone. It says here that they are to offer whole burnt offerings and peace offerings. These were both offerings that were involved with sin, but in different ways. The whole burnt offering was the one that that took their place, that stepped into their place. And it's a picture of Christ. But the peace offering is the idea that sin has been atoned for, but there's still a sacrifice that's needed in order to bring the two parties into fellowship. Even though the guilt has been forgiven, there's the longing on the part of God to be in fellowship with his people. And the peace offering, the beauty of the peace offering is that it wasn't to be burned up completely. Instead, it, only the fat, the best of the offering was to be burned and then it was to be cooked and it was to be eaten. And the idea was that they were, they were sitting down at the table with God to eat. They were eating a, a meal of fellowship. And all of that rested on the free grace of God. You know, if you and I come into fellowship with God, if you come to know God for yourself, it will not be because you're better than the people around you or because somehow you're more spiritually sensitive or you love God more or or God loves you more. It will be simply because of God's grace being shown to us. God himself has given himself to us. Don't mess it up. Don't mess it up by pointing to your own righteousness, your good works, or anything in yourself. What does the scripture say? If you do that, you pollute it. You you destroy the gospel message. This is the way Paul puts it in the book of Colossians. He says, I'm sorry, Galatians. He says, having begun in the spirit, are you going to now be made perfect by the flesh? What's he saying there? He's saying, God has begun doing this work in you. You think you can add to his work? You think you can somehow perfect his work? No, this is God that's done this. Do you see how these things are actually related? That it's related to our desire to be praised by people, to have other people see us as better than we are or better than we deserve. But God has come and revealed the gospel to us. And this gospel is that while we were sinners and alienated from God, 
that God has given us His Son as the atonement for our sins. And through that atonement, we have free fellowship with God. May we recognize in this both the warnings and the promise of the Word of God. That the way is open. See, if it was something that you or I had to earn or a place that you or I had to go to, get to, in order to have peace with God, then there would be nobody worthy. No one has done enough to earn the favor of God. Some of us might be able to convince ourselves, but we can't. I I read where someone was pointing out that when we fall into that kind of works salvation, it always leads to either pride or despair. Sinful pride says, yes, it's work salvation and I've done enough. Despair says, it's work salvation and I can never do enough. But the gospel points us to the cross where God did everything. And now we turn to him in faith. And even that faith itself is a gift of God. It's not because we've earned this place, but because God himself came and offered himself in the person of Jesus As atonement for our sins. Because God so loved the world. He gave his only son. So that whoever believes on Christ. Will not perish. But will receive eternal life. May we believe the gospel. May we embrace the gospel. And may we live out the gospel. Every single day.